All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 69 of the Between the Cracks podcast. <laughs> I, I'm your host, Bill, and unfortunately, Chris is not with us yet again. I know I did promise that he would be returning this week, but he did write me and let me know that he has decided to officially leave the program, and we certainly do wish him nothing but the best. Uh, that's unusual because I'm here. So at this point, I'm just going to keep moving forward by myself uh, and uh, see uh, you know, if I can eventually find a new co-host and uh, take here. it from there. Chris, please, bud, stop being so selfish. This is not about you, okay? <laughs> Jesus. Chris, you're back. Am I really, though? <laughs> In spirit, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's just been a busy last couple of fucking weeks. Well, it looks like you're going to be on the move again, aren't you? You might be moving up this way. Yeah, I'm. hopefully we're getting very close on uh, closing in on a house, so fingers crossed things don't uh, fall through, because, you know, in this market... Oh, my God. And would you like to give us the address in case anybody else is interested in purchasing the place? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's probably a good idea. Your new place is going to be back here in Dutchess County... And that ties in perfectly, bud, because this is it. This is the final episode for our Hudson Valley Horror Month Spectacular. And I said last week, it started in in late August, made its way all the way through September, and now here we are in the middle of October, and this is only the fourth episode of Hudson Valley Horror Month, but (laughs) somehow we made it. This is it. This is the end. A Hudson Valley Horror year, uh, you know, it doesn't matter when it happens, right? I guess we should mention, when is our two-year anniversary? I believe that's coming up in January of uh, 2022. Chris, we're going to be two, bud. Wow, the fact that we're still doing this. I mean, that's it's incredible. And the downloads are, are increasing, and I don't know, man. It's, for some reason, it seems like we're doing something not right, but okay. <laughs> that's for sure. I don't know what these people are listening to, but uh, I guess we'll just keep churning them out. But, bud, please, enough about you. Can we focus on me for a second? <laughs> I say, Chris. I, I have, have at it, man. I mean, <laughs> oh God, I'm delusional, Chris. Why don't we get right into it? But as I said, we are at the end of Hudson Valley Horror Month, and we have been all throughout the valley. We've been up in Columbia County, we've been in Dutchess County, last week I was over in Ulster County, so we are now making our last stop in glorious Putnam County, Chris. More specifically, we're going to be in a beautiful hamlet of Mayapak, New York. What do you think of that? Place sounds familiar to me. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's your hometown, Chris. (laughs) Used to be, yes. That's where I, uh, that's pretty much where I grew up. And so now we have to look into you a little bit more suspiciously when we start getting into this story, because perhaps you know more than you're uh, letting on. Well, I wasn't born for another 30 years after it happened, so I mean, I don't know what I could possibly know. Chris, please, facts don't matter anymore in the world. It's all based on feelings. <laughs> but in this case, facts do indeed matter, Chris, because this is a weird one. It's one case, but there's almost two separate entities to it. We have the crime that was committed... And then we have the eventual sentencing and the way in which this gentleman tried to get out of his sentence. The way in which he tried to do that actually made bigger news than the murder itself. It's very odd, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And it appears this gentleman bit off a bit more than he could chew. 
<laughs> Here we're starting with the puns early, Chris. So let's <laughs> so let's get into it because tonight we are discussing the case of the wretched human being known simply as Donald Hughes Snyder. I'm nearly certain most people do not know who Donald Hughes Snyder is. He is indeed a convicted child killer, and we're going to get into all that. But he's more well known for being a death row convict who attempted to get his sentence reduced to life without parole by gaining weight to assure the fact that he would not be able to fit into the electric chair, as that was the way he was sentenced to die. (laughs) Now, Chris, have you ever heard of such a thing? (laughs) No, and I guess I suppose at first it would sound extremely absurd, but perhaps old Donnie was onto something? Well, we're going to find out uh, if he was or if he wasn't, because um, the story does end in uh, a rather interesting way. So uh, let's get into it, Chris. Who was Donald Hugh Snyder? Well, old Donnie Boy was born on July 3rd, 1927, in Wampsville, New York. And from all accounts, Snyder had an absolutely terrible childhood. Apparently, his parents divorced when he was a baby, and it was throughout his childhood that he would bounce back and forth between living with his abusive father and his mother, who had a string of different boyfriends, and some of those guys were abusive to Donald as well. So this led into Donald acting out. It all culminated into him running away at the age of 12. He made his way down to New York City where he lived on the streets for nearly two months. Now, get this, Chris. This is what I found very interesting. Apparently, after those two months, he was caught and returned to his father. He eventually ran away again, but it says here that he left school in seventh grade. Seventh grade, Chris. (laughs) To join the Marines in 1942 and serve his country during World War II. How is that possible? Well, let me add this little tidbit. It seems that old Donnie here was the first of his kind because upon doing the math here, I came to the conclusion (laughs) that Donald was a 15-year-old 7th grader. Now, that seems quite old for 7th grade, doesn't it? It Looks like he was held back a couple years. (laughs) Yeah, you think? (laughs) So, so all was not lost, though, because as I said, Donald, somehow at the age of 15, was able to join the Marines. Apparently, his mom had to sign a waiver or a request in order to get him in there, but from the documented troubled relationship that they had, she had no problem signing this and sending old Donnie off to war. Back then, man, if you really wanted to get in there. Well, my dad, I I told you, my dad got got into a little trouble, which I will not uh, reveal here on the show, but... He ended up entering the Navy. I think he was uh, 16 or 17. <laughs> and just for the record, Donald Snyder is not my dad. So, uh, <laughs> But yes, it does happen, especially back then. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he was a model Marine. Am I... Oh, shit, I haven't done this in a while. Am I right? Chris? <laughs> You are not. Uh, It it appears that Donald had a little bit of a problem with alcohol. So he would be found drunk a majority of the times. And if he wasn't fighting with uh, the occasional officer, he was being sent to the brig. Or in one instance, he was actually AWOL because, you guessed it, he was drunk. And this was out over in the Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands because of this behavior, that he actually never saw battle. So after all these things had transpired, 
the Marines said, enough is enough. You're out. So they ship him back to the States. And uh, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, again, I think that's the end of Donnie's military career. <laughs> well, you would think, uh, especially because after he was sent home the first time, but guess what old Donnie does? <laughs> what was that? So when he shipped home, he quickly joins the army in North Carolina, hoping to be sent to Europe. Now, Chris, how did his time in Europe go? <laughs> he had an absolutely lovely time in France. Perhaps in his dreams, though, because he didn't get a chance to go to Europe, and uh, he decided to go AWOL yet again. And, and this time, his travels take him to California, where he eventually hitchhiked to. And... Uh, was sent to a juvie detention center for, uh, I don't think he's ever done this before, getting drunk. Oh, no, that's new. <laughs> and stealing a car. How funny is that, dude? Because through all this mayhem, he's still a juvenile. Exactly. So you're thinking that this is perhaps somebody who's in their no. 20s or 30s? No. This is a kid! This guy is beyond his time. <laughs> so let's recap a little bit, if we can. He joined the Marines when AWOL got shipped back. Joined the army, went AWOL, made his way out to California, got arrested. And then at this point in time, he's in a juvenile detention center. He does his time there. They ship him back to New York. Upon returning to New York, you would hope that maybe something would change, but nothing changed at all. Things only got worse. Donald continued on with his new hobby of getting drunk and stealing cars. And after being caught a few times, the judge said, enough is enough. I am done with you. I cannot take any more of your bullshit. You are being sent to prison for a maximum of five years. If nothing else, at least the streets of upstate New York will be a little safer without a drunken maniac driving around. And so he's sent to Attica State Prison, the infamous Attica State Prison, I might add, uh, before he eventually gets transferred over to Greenhaven, which is in June of 1950. Yeah, and Greenhaven Correctional Facility is located right down here in Southern Dutchess County in the town of Beekman. And this is where things really start to unravel because Donnie, having to finish his sentence in Greenhaven, decides he doesn't want to finish his sentence in Greenhaven. But shockingly, he had a mere two months left before he decides to escape. And it says that he escaped while doing farm work. So I'm imagining that he must have been somewhat of a model prisoner to some degree, right? If he had that ability to be working outside and not under constant watch. It wasn't like breaking out of uh, Alcatraz, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And we know the area well. And as I've said in quite a few episodes already, being this is Hudson Valley Horror Month, the area is filled with mountain ranges and waterways. So if you could break loose and get a, a few hour head start, you could disappear and uh, never be seen nor heard from again. So he's working out in his farm, and he says, you know what, this is my chance. So he splits and then goes into the heavily forested area that we have around here. So they begin looking for him. They can't find him. Old Donnie makes his way, Chris, to uh, the death trap we all know and love, the Taconic State Parkway. <laughs> yeah, that's no small feat. I'm surprised he didn't get smashed there. <laughs> so yeah he makes his way down the parkway and he's like you know what i'm way too out in the open somebody's gonna spot me so he goes back into the woods but he walks parallel to the taconic and begins making his way south with the goal of eventually 
hitting New York City, and then when, once he gets there, going to wherever the hell he chooses. Let me guess, to have a few drinks? <laughs> that, we, we, that, that's an unfair assessment, Chris. Oh, apologies. We have nothing to back that up with. So, <laughs> anyway, here we go. Donnie's making his way south down to Connick, and that's when he decides to get off in Mayapak. This is where our story really starts to unravel. Because on the afternoon of June 11th, 1952... Old Donnie Douchebag here is walking down Bullet Hole Road in the town of Mayapak when he comes across three children playing in the front yard of the Arnold residence. Donald Snyder concocts a plan to take these three children hostage in order to take their parents' car and drive that car down to New York City. So what happens is, upon seeing these three kids, he hops over a little stone fence they had there and asked nine-year-old Betty June Arnold, the daughter of the homeowners, if her mom or dad was home and if they have a car. She said, my dad isn't, but my mom is here, and yes, we do have a car. So upon getting this information that they did indeed have an automobile, Donald makes his way to the front door. And fortunately enough, Betty June's mom, Dorothy Arnold, had the screen door locked, so he wasn't able to make it into the house at this point. This frustrates him, and he begins screaming, And he says, quote, unquote, I'm an escaped con. Open the door and let me in. I want to talk to you. So Dorothy basically says, F you, I'm not doing it. He says to her, I have to get to New York. And you and the three children in this yard are going to be driving me down. And then Dorothy says, I can't drive. And she's lying because we come to find out that she couldn't de-drive. So now things get even more heated. And this is a direct quote from Donald. Well, then you've got to find a way. If you don't. I'll kill the three children. I've already killed a man. But we learn that that was a lie. Snyder never killed a man. He was only arrested for the drunk driving and the stealing of the uh, automobiles. So he had no track record of murder or any other violent crime. Clearly just trying to intimidate her to the point of getting him down there. Yeah, and it worked. So at this point, Dorothy's obviously stunned. You have this lunatic who shows up on your front porch. And in addition to that, you have this barrier between you and the safety of the three children that are out front. Dorothy basically tries to make it so that the children can escape the situation. And realizing that this guy's serious, so she shouts out to them, run for the Sperry's. So the kids started running, and then Snyder actually turns and jumps off the front porch and grabs Betty June. And we should mention, Chris, that the Sperry's were the neighbor, and that the other two children were the children of the Sperry family. Right, and so the other two children actually make it back over to their house. Dorothy goes to run to the phone and call the Sperrys. And then she hears a crashing sound and then runs out back to the front door and she sees that Donnie had broke into the house. And so he comes into the house with Betty June because he's now grabbed her. And now this is really going to make your blood boil. Little nine-year-old Betty June yells to her mom, and I quote, Mommy, do not let him hurt me. As a father, I'm feeling rage, so I can't even imagine what Dorothy was going through. I mean, this guy's a real piece of shit. Yeah, he clearly wants to get to New York City more than anything. It doesn't seem like anything's going to stop him from doing it. He's willing to go to, to any length at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, obviously, we're looking at this, and this is not a very well-thought-out plan. He came up with this idea, as we said, on the spot. So, it's already beginning to fall apart, because now the Sperrys have this information... And upon knowing that there's a madman in their neighbor's house, they're going to call the police. So this guy's not going anywhere. 
what ends up happening now is, like you said, this this whole situation escalates because now the neighbors are alerted. One other neighbor, Florence Rice, who is the grandmother of one of the children that were just there, walks over and she comes up to the front door. And then that's when Dorothy's shouting out, saying, get out, get out of here, hitchhike to New York. I don't care how to get to New York, but get out of here. And so now there's other neighbors in the area that are hearing a commotion going on. They start going coming by and then someone calls the cops. Yeah, so this is starting to spread like wildfire, uh, especially by 1950 standards. So now Donald's being put into a corner here. He's, he's, he's basically putting himself in a situation where he can't get out of. Yeah, he's trapped. And now this is all over Mayapak. And as it's noted, Chris, in my favorite book here that I've mentioned quite a few times on the show, Hudson Valley Murder and Mayhem by Andrew Amelinx. I'm going to have to get this guy on the show. I keep talking about him. <laughs> so he talks about how there was this uh, local school bus driver. He was actually very good friends with Marvin Arnold, Dorothy's husband and Betty June's dad. So Marvin gets this news at work, so he's frantic. He's flying home, and then he sees his friend driving this school bus, dropping off kids after school, approaches him he's like you got to come with me we got the situation at the house and i'm going to need as much backup as possible so alex williams is like fuck yeah let's do this gets out of the school bus hops in the car with marvin and they head on over to the arnold residence now chris i'm not trying to make light of this situation at all but there was one interesting little uh note in this book here and it says that uh, upon leaving the bus alex williams the bus driver <laughs> Seems he wasn't done making his stops. Apparently, he just left the bus, hopped in Marvin's car, and left the child on there that he was supposed to deliver to their home. So this guy just hops out of the bus and leaves the kid there. <laughs> Find your way home, sweets. Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, this situation is crazy. And you can obviously understand the thinking from the bus driver because his friend's daughter is being held hostage. So he's not in his right mind. And, you know, the adrenaline and everything else. So he probably just panicked and hopped out, not even thinking about leaving that kid there. You're talking about Mayapak in 1952, where who the hell knows if there's any crimes at that time, but it's certainly not one like this so this is clearly a heightened community right now so it, it seems like everyone's just getting caught up in it yeah and how could you not <laughs> you know you're in a situation where a nine-year-old girl and her mother are being held hostage by an escaped con right so get this chris when marvin and alex finally pull up to the house the house is surrounded by neighbors dude and some of them have guns drawn that's what i'm talking about hell yeah i mean one guy's sitting there with a shotgun pointed right at the house so Marvin looks in and he sees Betty June in the middle of Donald Snyder and Dorothy. And he looks down and sees that Donald Snyder had a butcher knife in his hand. Obviously, you got to play this situation very carefully. But uh, I thought this was very interesting, Chris, and um, very uh, rage-inducing as well. It seems that in Snyder's other hand was a sandwich with a few bites taken out of it. So this motherfucker had the balls to make a sandwich in the middle of all this. This guy's something else, that's for sure. Yeah, he's a real winner. So upon seeing her dad in the doorway, poor Betty June yells out again, Daddy, please don't let him hurt me. And the, just the torment that this poor little girl is going through is, like I said before, absolutely rage-inducing. So now a verbal altercation begins taking place. Marvin is screaming at Donald Snyder from the outside. Dorothy's yelling too, so there's all this commotion. Marvin's saying, just take the car, get the hell out of here, and leave. You know, Dorothy's even saying, I'll give you the keys, get in the car, and go. 
But Snyder says to Dorothy, no, I'm not leaving without you and the little girl because you guys are my out. So obviously, like we said, there's a pack of wolves sitting outside with uh, shotguns. So as soon as this guy backs out by himself, they're just going to unload on him. So he does not want to leave this property by himself. He wants to take these hostages with him. Right, and they eventually end up making their way into the 1950 Ford that the Arnolds had, which was in the garage. And, and Betty June shows him how to get to the garage through their cellar. At this point, they're all sitting in the back seat of the, the Ford. At this point, Dorothy is still saying that she does not know how to drive because she obviously does not want to leave with this guy. So remember the family friend, Alex Williams, the bus driver, he volunteers. He's like, let me drive you and let Dorothy and Betty June go. But once again, Donald denies that request because he wants Betty June and Dorothy as his hostage. But ultimately, he did agree to let Alex Williams drive the car. And there's a little something about Alec Williams that we don't know. What's that? That Alec is also a special police officer for the town of Carmel. Special police officer? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> but he was apparently a special police officer. And that comes in to play a role with what happens next, right, Chris? Well, yes, because uh, the cops actually asked Alec if he had a gun. And when he replies no, well, the deputy hands his thirty-eight revolver right over to him. And... You know, I'm, I'm guessing that only happened because <laughs> Alex was a police officer as well. I mean, I would find it very odd for a cop to uh, just give any random person his gun and say, <laughs> take a shot if you get it. You never know back then, man. Yeah, anything could happen <laughs> back then. different yeah. times. Because if people are done, I mean, it's not now where they're bringing a social worker and they want to talk to old Donnie. You try hurting a child and her mom, gloves are off. Yeah, if you're talking about a time where the electric chair exists, you know... <laughs> Anything's possible here. <laughs> so the situation continues to escalate, and it's about to reach its peak. Snyder is panicking, and the paranoia sets in. And he tells Alec Williams, you know what? Get the hell out of the car. You can't be here. Dorothy's going to drive. So upon hearing this, Williams is battling back and forth with him. You know, let me drive. What could Williams really do? Because he has the knife to Betty June's neck and Williams is thinking if I try anything funny or if I try to tackle him things are going to go from bad to worse so Alex Williams gets out of the car walks around the back looks through the back window he sees that he has what he thinks is a pretty clear shot so he goes for it he points the gun at Snyder and takes three shots and he ends up hitting him with two out of the three shots and one shot hits Snyder right in the jaw yeah into the jaw and out the neck and then the second one tears right into his left side and the third one missed. So now Snyder has slid down from the seat toward the floor. But still alive, mind you. Yes, and, and then, and this is absolutely awful. Dorothy hears Betty June make a whimper sound and reached over and pulled her into the front seat. And she was bleeding from a knife wound to her left side near the abdomen. Yeah, so unfortunately, Snyder did carry out his threat and he killed nine-year-old Betty June. Donald Snyder survived his gunshot wounds. And it's at this point that Snyder is taken into custody. And after spending some time in the hospital for his wounds, he is shipped off to prison where he would await his murder trial. And they wasted no time on this because that took place on September 2nd, 1952. So going into the trial, you'd imagine that Snyder's defense team is concocting a plan as to how they can get him off or 
get his sentence reduced because we should mention that the prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. At the very least, they were trying to get his sentence reduced to just life in prison. And what they tried to prove was that the stabbing of Betty June was accidental, and that because he was shot, he fell over and ended up stabbing her. So it was by accident, he's saying. And then the defense attorney starts going into how troubled Donald was, his childhood, this and that. And thankfully, the jury was having none of this, Chris, because on September 22nd, 1952, they found Donald Snyder guilty of the murder of Betty June Arnold. And uh, the judge had no mercy on Snyder. He sentenced Snyder to die by way of electric chair at Sing Sing State Prison in Ossining, New York. I'm not going to attempt to defend Snyder in any way, but it does make you wonder, judging by his nonviolent past, if this was indeed an accident. Upon being shot, he did have the knife pressed to Betty June. Was it reactionary from being shot? Or was it intentional? Was it retribution to being shot? Right, and, and you obviously can't trust the word of a murderer, but in a situation you could see as it going either way, because like you said, he has no violent history, no violent crime ever He's been, that he was convicted of anyway. You know, he's really just been like a drunken fool who just goes around stealing cars and, you know, having a joyride with them. But he put himself in a situation that caused this to happen. So, I, you know, I really don't feel bad for that sentence. Accident or not, you you put yourself in a situation where you threatened a nine-year-old kid, you had a knife up to her, and whatever happens, happens there. You know, you're, you're gone, bud. Yeah, man, Sorry. I mean, you threaten a child or you try to hurt a child, I lose any sense of um, empathy or compassion for you. Chris, let me ask you this, and as I said in the beginning of the show, there were two separate entities to this story. So we had this one tragic event that took place with the murder of Betty June Arnold. Then we had Snyder sentenced to death by way of electric chair. Now, let me ask you, did old Donnie Snyder just accept his fate and go quietly into the electric chair and ultimately into the gates of hell? Well, not exactly, because uh, Donald Snyder had a plan. An escape plan? Well, technically, I guess, yes. He planned to escape from the electric chair. But he knew that escaping the prison wasn't a possibility. So he thought, perhaps, let's see, if I can't get out of prison, I don't want to be killed by electric chair. How could I get out of this? And what he came up with was, I'm going to eat my way out of this. What, what do you mean? Well, old Donnie, who was weighing a mere 150 pounds at this time, decides, I'm going to become so fat... <laughs> No. That I can't fit in the electric chair. No, come on, man. No, I'm serious. <laughs> and uh, this led to Don eating a copious amount of food at each meal so that he could explode so much in size that they had have no choice but to change his sentence from death by electric chair to life in prison. <laughs> so, let me see if I got this straight. So, you're telling me that... Little 150-pound Donald Snyder ate his way to 300 pounds within a one-year period, or less than a one-year period, I should say, because he was sentenced on September 22nd, and the execution was to take place on July 16th, 1953. So this little twerp entered Sing Sing at 150 pounds 
and went to the chair at 300 pounds. So he must have annihilated every little scrap of food that he could find. That he did. And even on the day of execution, you know, when it's time for your last meal, his request was simply pork chops and eggs and plenty of them. This guy is nothing more than an antagonist. Uh, well, he certainly made for good news because this definitely caught the eyes of a New York City uh, reporter. And they wrote some interesting uh, information about the case. Yeah, can you lay it on us, Chris? I, I found these articles very interesting. I, I, they used a lot of um, interesting terminology that I don't think that you would find today in any periodical. So, the last few hours, he was talking with a guard, and he was thinking about what the newspapers might say when it turns out that he was going to be too fat for the uh, electric chair. So... He was feeling pretty good about his idea. And then when it came time to do the deed, uh, it seems that the chair was actually rather perfect. And the words that were used by a New York City reporter was that this chair had fitted him as though it had been made to order. <laughs> so let me just clarify for a second, if you don't mind. The reporter is basically attempting to say that... Uh, Old Snyder here would have a better chance at avoiding a death penalty <laughs> if he stayed at a mere 150 pounds because uh, upon doubling in size and ballooning to over 300 pounds, it seems that once he sat into that electric chair, for all intents and purposes, the chair fit like a glove. <laughs> it, <laughs> it couldn't have fit any better if they built it around old Donnie. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We thought that the plan to take the hostages was bad. I mean, but <laughs> to eat yourself out of the electric chair? I mean, my God. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't eat himself into a heart attack before the goddamn... Seriously, now, I mean, how did the prison allow this to take place? How much food did he have access to? That actually was something I was thinking about earlier, too, because I don't think it was that you could just grab as much food as you wanted, right? What was he, eating mice and <laughs> roaches? Or other people's foods? Uh, food? I don't know. Oh, my God. Chris, would you mind just finishing off that article? Because I think the reporter finished off that article with a very compelling statement. And if you wouldn't mind reading that to us, uh, I'd appreciate it. And by the way, this is an article called Too Big to Fail, The Murderer Who Tried to Eat His Way Off Death Row by Matt Soniak. And the final words are perfect. Uh, it merely says that the executioner flipped the switch and Donald Snyder died a fat man. I'm sorry, can you uh, read that last part again for me? Donald Snyder died a fat man. <laughs> I feel like you're just taking too much joy in this. There's a tone in your voice that seems rather jubilant about the fact that uh, Donald Snyder ballooned up to 300 pounds. And I don't necessarily care for your fat shaming, to be quite frank. <laughs> And fuck it, I'm pulling the alarm. Oh no! Yeah, brother, you came back and the alarm's pulled. I, I don't no. believe this. <laughs> but yeah, Chris, that's it. That is the story of Donald Snyder and the Fat Man. And somehow, what we come to find out is that they were one and the same. <laughs> a befitting ending to a horrific story. Well, Chris, I do hope that Betty June, wherever she may be, was able to uh, get some... Peace and joy out of what became of our douchebag of the hour, Donald Snyder. 
Indeed. Yes. So with all that said, Chris, why don't you let me give the rundown and we can get the hell out of here. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at btcpod2020 at gmail.com. Or if you want, you can get in touch with us on Facebook at the Between the Cracks podcast. Or you can get in touch with me on Instagram, the Between the Cracks podcast. If you want to become one of our lovely patrons, please feel free to do so. If you want to buy any BTC merch, you can click on that and show links. And, uh, you know, take a look and see what we have. So without any further ado, Chris, what do you say we wish the fine, fine people out in podcast land the fondest? Oh. Releasing this one, dude, for another week. Because I have 60 days. Yeah.